0: Hello and welcome to the Learn English Football Podcast with your hosts, Tom and Tim. Hi, Tom. Hi, Tim. How are you? I'm very well, very well. How are you? I'm doing very well, Tim. It's a little bit hot here, but uh, I must admit I like it hot, so everything's fine. Well,
1: uh, our listeners will be probably not very interested to hear that I'm sitting in an air room for the first time whilst doing the Learn English Football podcast. So, uh, yeah, I can relate to your suffering, Tom, and, and to escape that suffering has cost me a lot of money. Um, so, Tom, it's getting hot, which means the football season must be
0: over. Is that right? That is right, Tim. And uh, we're going to work our way backwards. We've got a few episodes planned for the near future, but we're going to start with the most recent big game, which was, of course, the Champions League final. Last Saturday night, Inter Milan and Manchester City met in Istanbul i'm sure our listeners are already familiar with the result Manchester City won the game 1-0 to win their first ever Champions League uh, and just a quick trivia question for you Tim Manchester City have now joined three a, a, a list they're third on the list of British teams who have won a European treble can you tell me the other two teams
1: is well Manchester United
0: British yes. teams or English teams Oh, well listened. I did say British team. You're right. The Celtic team in the 1960s. I think it was 66. uh, I think it was that time. Also won a European treble. Very good. Yeah,
1: Uh, you know me, Tom. I don't know any information that could ever earn me any money in life, but football trivia. (laughs) uh, I'm hot on it. Um, So, yeah, it was... um, coming just back to what you said earlier yeah a lot of our listeners will uh don't worry i know it's the summer and uh there's no football but as tom said we've got lots of episodes coming up over the over the next few weeks to keep the content coming uh looking back at the season but we've decided to stagger the release of the of the episodes to stagger means to release them bit by bit so they don't all come at once. So don't worry. On the left, Pod Learning's football podcast, we have uh, taken into account that we're going into the dry drought of the summer period, and I also appreciate a lot of our listeners probably won't be following the cricket like me and you. Um, so, Tom, what did you think about the starting 11s? Did you think of any uh, any surprises? I, I was I was surprised not to be surprised. I think Pep Guardiola has finally learnt his lesson. He played... The starting eleven that played in the semi-finals, or or the starting eleven that he's been depending on all season for great performances, and he didn't overthink the situation for the first time in European uh, in his European history for Manchester City, and so I was surprised not not to be surprised. What did you think about the Manchester City eleven? There was a slight yeah. change. Carl Walker dropped out uh, for Nathan Ake, which meant Ikanji went over uh, and played. Um, kind of right center back moving John Stones to a right back position and Nathan Aké to the left. But that's a variation that they've been using consistently all season. So it wasn't as if Kyle Walker was dropped. What did you reckon to the Manchester City lineup?
0: Yes, you mentioned the player. Kyle Walker is perhaps the only Manchester City player who could feel hard done by, which is a nice expression. To feel hard done by means to feel unfairly treated. Uh, His form has been excellent. He's definitely one of the best uh, defenders in the world. He could play centre back or right back. But Pep was consistent with his tactical formation. Uh, you're correct. In the semifinals, they also used this uh, quite a tall back four. I, I know a- Ake is the smallest of the four, alongside Ruben Diaz, Akanji and John Stones. But Ake is also a centre-back. So Pep likes a, a back four of centre-backs. But we also mentioned this on the last podcast, that he has a very fluid formation. And when City have the ball, uh, they push John Stones into the midfield, into the space next to Rodri. Uh, And that wasn't a surprise. We were uh, commenting and commending. Commending means uh, giving praise, saying good things about John Stones' ability. Not a player you'd imagine being a good midfielder, uh, but I understand that, well, according to the bbc statistics he was voted man of the match by the the viewers uh, the the bbc listeners who call in and decide who the best player is so uh, i also noticed that uh, he had six dribbles during the game and he com- completed all of them successfully to dribble means to run with the ball from uh, one place to another and successfully means he, he was able to complete his pass at the end of it so uh, i wasn't surprised by that and John Stones in particular stepped up, but as did Akanji, who, who we know got the, uh, the pre-assist for the goal. Uh, he laid the pass to Bernardo Silva. And Ruben Diaz had one of his strongest games that we've seen for a long time. And of course, Nathan Ake, consistent as ever as a defender. So I can't begrudge Pep, meaning I can't feel bad for Pep leaving out uh, Kyle Walker from this formation.
1: No, I agree. And let's not forget, okay, Carl Walker had a great game against uh, Real Madrid, but. Earlier in the season, he wasn't starting regularly. Uh, in fact, Pep Guardiola did actually say that Carl Walker was incapable of playing the inverted fullback role in quite a, almost a direct challenge to him, uh, only about two or three months ago. And of course, Carl Walker had some off-field problems uh, revealing, allegedly revealing, private, intimate parts of his body to other people in a pub on a Sunday afternoon. Um, so that could have also been been a factor in his uh his not being a first choice for pep all season but moving on to the game um the game started and it was it, it people said it would be an easy victory for manchester city but it was never going to be easy there's no such thing as, a, as an easy game against an italian team and there's no such thing against an easy as an easy final um and into you could see that why they got to the final, they were able to move the ball very intelligently, exploit space. I was very impressed with their ability to switch play, which means to move the ball from one end uh, from one side of the pitch to the other side of the pitch very quickly, normally to, to to find some space. They were switching the play very well. Uh Di Marco looked a fantastic player, uh, really impressive player. Um, but the early chances did go to Manchester City. There was the um, the Bernardo Silva dribble when he was cutting in on his left foot from the right-hand side and he uh, curled a shot just past the far corner. And then, of course, there was the Haaland chance from the Kevin De Bruyne pass. Um, and at that point, you're thinking, "Wow, Manchester City—they're—they're they're finding their their rhythm, they're getting into gear, which is another way of saying to find your rhythm." And um, and and it's going to be an easy—not an easy victory, but you know, it was going to be a comfortable victory. And then, of course, was the Kevin De Bruyne injury quite early on. Um, and a Kevin De Bruyne is the heartbeat of that of their attacking play, and that obviously was difficult. And and Phil Foden. Any other team in the world would be starting with Phil Foden and he would be a star of their side, but he's not Kevin De Bruyne. So it's always going to create a few challenges in terms of his playing style, the areas he occupies uh, and just his general style of play. Um but in general, the first half was quite evenly contested. Both teams were in it. A couple of chances both end. I think Lautura Martinez had a had a chance um after the Akanji um and, uh, and Edison got in a bit of a mix up. Both of them left the ball for the other one. But the first half was pretty evenly contested. What did you make of the first half?
0: I'd agree with you. I thought that uh, Inter Milan, tactically, so of course, credit to their coach, Simeone, uh, they were... Brilliant. They were smothering Manchester City, preventing Manchester City uh, coming out with the ball through the normal midfield channel of Rodri. Whenever Rodri received the ball, he was pounced upon, meaning that there was a triangle of midfielders, Barella, uh, the Croatian Brozovic and the Turk, uh, Chanaloglu. sorry for the pronunciation, Turkish listeners. Uh, They were very close to Rodri throughout the first half. And they gave him no space and no time. Uh, They smothered him, meaning they suffocated, they prevented City from having that outlet, uh, which meant that City had to go to the wingers. And you mentioned Di Marco and Dumfries were then closing down very tight on Bernardo Silva and Jack Grealish. So... Uh, it was rare to see City being stopped in their possession uh, so effectively. Uh, I have to say a couple of comments. Uh, I also agree with you that Inter Milan were switching play. Uh, I was surprised to see their centre-back, I I think the pronunciation might be Acerbi or would that be Acerbi? How do you say that one, Tim? Uh, Good question. (laughs) <laughs> yes, it's with one C, so I'm sure. I think it's Acerbi. Uh, he started, oh, is he Italian? He's Italian, yes. Oh, Acerbi. Good. He was starting instead of uh, Skrinia, who we know a lot about, and the Dutch centre-back, Devridge or Divrij, Uh Again, apologies to Dutch listeners. Uh, and... I could see why, as the game progressed, he had fantastic uh, control of his long-range passing on both his left foot and his right foot. Uh, You mentioned Di Marco, who I thought looked an excellent talent, even though, to my British mentality, he did seem a little bit too lightweight. By lightweight, I'm saying that... uh, He was a bit sensitive to any kind of tackle that seemed to take him down and, you know, clutching his head, clutching his leg. I don't like to see this, but uh, I know that uh, it can be very effective as a tactic on the referee. Uh, And I'd agree with you that the first half was very even, uh, both in terms of chances. I think the one you mentioned, the mix-up between uh, Akanji and Edson, was at the start of the second half. That was Lautaro Martinez' best chance. But they did also have a very good chance in the first half. I think when Rodri missed the ball and, and Lautaro was involved in that one as well. So it was definitely an even first half.
1: Yeah, uh, I agree. And the second half was again, Quite similar, but you did feel that Manchester City started to get the upper hand a little bit. Uh, Watching that second half, if you just take away from the the goal, you could just look at the momentum and you think, well, if there's one side that's likely to win this, you would say it was Manchester City. However, having said that, there were chances up the other end and we'll talk about them. Let's, let's look at the Manchester City goal then. It, it really was a wonderful strike from Rodri. Uh, you mentioned him before having a bit more of a difficult game. And in fact, in the post-match press conference, he said just that. He said it was one of the worst games he's played. He gave a lot of credit to the Inter midfield for exactly what you mentioned for pressing him. But nobody will remember that. Everyone will remember the beauty of the contact and how well he put the ball into the back of the net. In the interview post-match, he did mention he his initial thought was to try and uh, kind of get his laces through the ball. And your laces are the bits of string at the top of your shoe, which closed the shoe. Um, but in the, in the moment, he thought, no, I I could miss that. It's a much more dangerous attempt. So he decided... In a split second to open up his foot and to kind of, you could say curl it, but I wouldn't say curl it because it was a real drive. And the fact that there was a bit of curl on the ball was just because it was with the inside of his foot. He still drove it home and he curled it round the defender. He blindsided the goalkeeper, um, Onana, is it? And uh, made it almost... And it made it almost impossible for the goalkeeper, I think, who had had a good game. Um, and it was a wonderful goal, wonderful celebrations. And after that, you felt that uh, Manchester City, although they were they they knew they were in a battle against a, a world class team in Inter Milan, you 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 felt that they they. They could kind of keep into at arm's length until, of course, the final few minutes when every team is going to have those moments of desperation where they're willing to make sacrifices to the defensive shape to push more men forward. But it was a wonderful goal. Uh, Bernardo Silva played the ball back across to Rodri. I think you said Akanji got the pre-assist. Um, and, you know, Bernardo Silva... He's one of these people that uh, he links play, doesn't he? You know, you can even, for example, Kevin De Bruyne who, or or Haaland. You would say are the most kind of dramatic players in this Manchester City side. It's players like Bernardo Silva, Gundogan, Gundogan, who um, who really make this these these different components work as a, as a united functioning system. And I thought it was a it was a great goal for a, for a final. Um, what did you think of it, Tom?
0: I did. I I actually uh, give most of the credit to Bernardo Silva for that goal. Now, that's not to take anything away from the strike of Rodri. It was a beautiful, curled effort. He, it went around not just one defender, but it actually curled around two defenders who were lined up on the goal line to try and block it. Uh, so the placement was fantastic. However, Why did Rodri have so... You mentioned he he was thinking, should I drive it with my laces or should I plant it? How did he have so much time? He had a lot of time because Bernardo Silva's cutback was so fantastic. Uh, Watching the replay, you could see Bernardo Silva have a look when he was in that space to, to cross the ball. He looked into the box. He saw Haaland, no doubt surrounded by defenders, and he just knew the the best place to put the ball was to he cut it back perfectly so it intersected between the inter milan defenders and it gave rodri a good i would say 2 or 3 seconds uh to approach the ball and and line up that strike uh so bernardo silva was uh for me the man of the match in particular for his second half and that assist the the time he gave rodri
1: yeah it's a very difficult area to mark for defense that isn't it because the obvious ball from the position Bernardo Silva was in was the kind of uh, the cross between the goalkeeper and the defender um, towards the front post or a dinked one towards the back post. And every defender's in- instinct is going to be to try and close down that area to follow, the, for example, a Haaland who might be trying to get into that area. But at the same time, when they're making that big effort to close down that space, they are leaving that huge bit of area uh, behind them uh, for an on-running midfielder or a a striker or a winger who's managed to drop off and come back inside. Um, And... You see more and more top teams trying to exploit that area because uh, a drilled ball across kind of in the corridor of uncertainty between the goalkeeper and defender is obviously a tap-in when it works, but it's got to be a perfect pass. You, you know, it's a very risky pass. You're unlikely to to, to complete the pass, but that little cutback pass is, is a lot simpler and you're still leaving someone a position of a shooting position, which is essentially from the penalty spot.
0: So you would expect them to score it. There's a difference between hitting a cross with intent and hitting a cross with hope. And that drilled uh, cross that Bernardo Silva could have tried to Haaland in the middle, there's always going to be an element of hope there. There's, a, there's always going to be Haaland trying to fight his way uh, from between Inter Milan defenders. In contrast, that cut back that bernardo silva did can be a purposeful ball of course he's not had a look to see rodri he has to trust that rodri is coming there but you can you can be sure that manchester city have practiced that on the training ground and Uh, Bernardo Silva would know that that is the right ball for that moment in time so it was a goal that was worthy of winning the Champions League I believe there was a lot of build-up play before that as well uh, with most of the Manchester City players involved Uh, so it was a real team goal for them
1: yeah it certainly was Um, and let's move on let's let's talk about uh, towards the end of the match we had, of course, um, another really good chance for, for Manchester City after a Phil Foden, a lovely piece of footwork from Phil Foden. He received the ball with his back to goal and the back to the defender, um, I think in the last 10 minutes of the match. and And with his first touch, was able to turn away from the defender towards the goal and kind of put himself through on goal. In fact, it was a bit of a tame shot in the end. Tame means not wild. A tame dog is a non wild dog, but a tame shot means not very dangerous. Um, and that was kind of it for Manchester City's chances. So, what I want to get to now is um let's look at some of these inter Milan chances towards the um towards the second half. I've got them all written down. I can't really remember what order they were in. But we've got um we've got the DiMarco chance. Uh, we've got the uh, we've got the Lukaku chance. We've got the Lukaku block when he blocks someone else's chance. Uh, we've got the Gossens uh, flick on header. So let's start firstly. Um, let's start with it with the DeMarco chance. Uh, when was it, he headed it? Uh, it was tipped onto the bar. Was it? It went onto the bar. Sorry. It came back. He had another strike at it and it came off Lukaku. It was going in and it came off Lukaku. Um, and that was really bad luck for Lukaku because it's not really his fault, but everyone will blame him for it. Um, and and then shortly after, of course, he misses the header. And suddenly Lukaku's the uh, the symbol of... of of um of Inter Milan's kind of lack of clinical finishing and and I think it's a bit harsh because a question I've got is should Lukaku have started because although he missed these chances or he blocked someone else scoring a chance, he was in the danger zone, he was creating problems um so what did you think about Lukaku's contribution to these two misses?
0: Uh, I, I think I'm getting a deja vu here. I'm remembering Belgium's final World Cup group game where Lukaku came on as a second-half substitute and had at least four glorious opportunities to score a goal to put Belgium through but miss them. Uh, In that game, Lukaku was truly out of form. In this game, I don't blame him for being in the wrong place and having uh, DiMarco's header rebound off him because it had just come off the bar. Lukaku uh, was again finding himself in the right position. You know, he knows as a striker where the dangerous place is, where he needs to be. He was just a little bit unlucky that the header went straight to him. And being the size he is, he's perhaps not quite as nimble as a, uh, a short player. You know, if he, if he was the height and weight of a Bernardo Silva, he might be able to jump out the way. But obviously, he's a much bigger striker. Later on, though, he did have that great header. Uh, this was one of Edson's saves near the end of the game. Do you think it was a great save or just good luck? Positioning. Do you make Uh, your own luck
1: in those situations? That's
0: right. Edson was lucky. He was positioned in the right place. He didn't have time to really move or react to the ball. The ball hit him on the leg. So that was a chance where Lukaku, uh, he was right to lean in, get as much power as he could on the header. But could he have been a bit more clinical? Could he have tried to place that header to the side of the goalkeeper? I mean, objectively,
1: you look at it and you think he's played the header right in the centre of the goal. So it's like, in his head, he's just gone for the easiest possible header. He hasn't done exactly what you commented, which is pick out a corner, pick a spot. So I think you can criticise
0: him for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's not take anything away from Edson, though, because a good team needs a good goalkeeper. We learnt this last year with uh, Thibaut Courtois in the final against Liverpool. And Edson who was fairly quiet for most of the game. Uh, you mentioned a bit of a uh, communication misunderstanding with Akanji, which wasn't punished early in the second half. Other than that, he, he he had to step up in the last few minutes of the game. Of course, we had the DiMarco chance. We had that Lukaku header. Uh, inst- he had three big moments in the last five minutes of stoppage time of that game. Uh, there was a high cross that came in and Edson came out and caught the ball, claimed it right near the edge yeah, of
1: the box. Could, and you could see his 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 defensive colleagues very much appreciated that. It was late on in the game. It killed some time. It took all the momentum out of the Inter Milan attack. Uh, very so, much appreciated yeah. when you're lucky he does that. You,
0: you could argue that that's just coming and catching the ball. But at that moment in time and the bravery to come out and claim it that far out of his box, uh, towards the edge of his box, for me made it another great save, another decisive piece of goalkeeping and then uh, right down to the last second of the game I believe the, Gossin, was the Gossin's Gossin's on. it was a, a very well-placed flick on he couldn't have really Gossens couldn't have done much more from that chance it was just a cross that came in uh, there was a corner the final corner of the game I think it was a corner yeah, yeah. Gossens Got the right angle on the ball; it was going across the goal towards Edson's far post. But he, again, he was well positioned. That was probably the, uh, the the most comfortable of the three saves in some ways because he could see it coming. He had time to give it a good fist. Uh, but that was a vital contribution from their goalkeeper as well. So it, it meant that you know even Edson had a uh, a shout for man of the match after those chances were saved at the end.
1: I think he's probably one of the most complete goalkeepers in world football, isn't he? Because he is a good shot stopper, but he's also world class with his feet um, and he commands his box well. I mean, we've given just in this game, we had examples of him playing well with the ball, stopping the ball well, commanding his area. But we did also have a chance, an, opportunity, an example of him being poor with the ball. Um, a chance we haven't mentioned was a pass from Edison. I think it was for Rodri and he went straight to Barella in the second half and Roger and the goalkeeper Edison was out of his goal. uh, And Barella went for the quick fire shot, a lob, which means he tried to play it over the goalkeeper. And it went significantly wide. It went so wide that it didn't really feel like it was that dangerous. And nobody's really talking about it as a big chance missed, but, Basically, Barella had an open goal and he was only 50 metres out. And if he, I think he had time to take a bit more of a touch. Uh, and, and I think the problem was he rushed it. And because of that, he, he really scuffed the shot. And to scuff the shot means to make poor contact. And so the ball doesn't go in the direction you want to. Um, but I really do think that was a big chance that was missed. Um, before we move on, so what do you think? So this was Sheikh Mansour, the Manchester City owner. This Was his second match in attendance since 2008, so he must have been happy with the result. Um, and um, it's Pep Guardiola's second treble as a manager. Um, so Tom, what do you think? What should we talk about first? The owner or Pep Guardiola? I, I think we should talk about the owner quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Is this a successful example of a, of a hands-off owner allowing the uh, the Manchester City uh, kind of directors of football and managers to get on with their job, or is this just an example of um, of sports washing of of a rich foreign company buying Manchester City and just saying got on with the job? If you're a Manchester City fan, would you be bothered that your owner doesn't come to football? I'm an Arsenal fan. I think Stan Kroenke has come to an Arsenal match about three or four times, uh, not more. Doesn't bother me in the slightest. But I have heard some City uh, fans getting slightly angry that the the owner never goes to the matches. Of course, we are Almeria fans as well in Spain. And our sheikh, Turki, has only been to two matches as well. Uh, So what do you think, Tom? Is there a kind of an obligation on owners to go to matches?
0: I don't think there is these days. Uh, I'd like to look at Manchester City in the context of... Other Middle Eastern uh, owners who have bought clubs, of course, Paris Saint-Germain is is run by a, a Qatari royal family, and now we have Newcastle United, which is run by a Saudi royal family. They call it an investment trust, but it's it's a branch of the Saudi royal family, uh, and it's inevitable that uh, sometimes the benefactor is not just is not going to be a football fan. Uh, I'm sure he, in the case of Sheikh Mansour, he's got children or nephews or nieces. Uh, who are able to take the steer the ship of Manchester City and take a more active role at the club? Uh, so for me, it's not important. If if he doesn't like football, he shouldn't have to come to football.
1: Yeah, I think I agree. Um, I think there's so much money in football that comes from all sorts of different places to start to try and judge one type of money whilst at the same time turning a total blind eye to other types of money, I think is very hypocritical. Um, and as you say, um, if fans, if clubs are winning, uh, then I don't think fans really care too much if the, if the owner's in the stands. So uh, next just question. To,
0: just to come back to that point. Yes. If you're a Paris Saint-Germain fan right now, you're looking at Manchester City with a lot of envy thinking, uh, you know, we've had similar investments and, you uh, you know their club seems to be moving in the opposite direction certainly this summer with the transfers away so uh i think if you were a manchester city fan you'd be relatively pleased with the way uh this this uh, club has built and and you know developed along this path to to finally european glory yeah um so then moving on to my second
1: point pep guardiola the treble of course maybe some of our foreign listeners won't be um Uh, so involved in the debate. But of course, Manchester United and Manchester City are eternal rivals. Uh, Manchester United fans... Uh, for the last 24 years, have have been uh, crowing about their treble victory in uh, 1999. To crow about something means to talk very proudly, uh, to talk very happily about something. And of course, Manchester City have now equaled Manchester United's achievement of the FA Cup, the Premier League and the Champions League in the same season. So, Tom, which treble... Do you think is more is more impressive? Uh, do you think the United treble in uh, when they beat Newcastle in the FA Cup final? They beat Tottenham two one on the last day of the season to steal the Premier League away from Arsenal. Uh, Arsenal lost our penultimate game of the season to put Manchester United in the box seat. And of course, they came back in the Champions League final, having been losing one nil, uh, with Sheringham and Oli Gunnar Solshare scoring two goals in in the ninety in in injury time. So, uh, do you think we can compare the trebles? Is one better than the other, um, or do you think they're different generations of football, and we shouldn't try to compare across generations? Or maybe you think that maybe you think this money related to Manchester City, the 111 financial breaches that are hanging over them, uh, which uh, devalues this trouble. What do you think, Tom?
0: I think this is a a question for a a conversation in a Manchester pub between a City fan and a United fan. And the debate will go on and on for some of the, the points you've mentioned They are two very different eras of football. You could argue that Manchester City have had a lot more financial investment than United did. But if you compare back in the day, then you'll see that United were also the big spenders they were the the number one club in in the, the league they had they had well. some very
1: expensive players they had Yapstam. they had uh, Dwight York they had Andy Cole these were all big signings of that generation but they did also have a British midfield uh, yeah. that had come through the youth system.
0: If I were to uh, try and make a comparison, then uh, you might argue that the Manchester United treble was a little bit luckier. You mentioned the the end of the league season. They rode their luck. To ride your luck means that you you, you are lucky. Uh, And also in the Champions League final, they scored two goals right at the end of that game that they were losing. In contrast, Manchester City have come through a different way. They had the pain of the semi-final defeat uh, when they were winning 1-0 against Real Madrid in the second leg uh, at the point of qualification the season before, losing in the final to Chelsea. So I feel that Manchester City have earned this victory a little bit more. They've, they've been forced to endure the, the pain of defeat to come back stronger. And so I, I feel that's a very necessary part of Building a team of champions, you have to lose before you can win. So, if I'm to compare the two, I think that the city victory, the city treble, is perhaps a little bit less based on luck and a little bit more based on uh, experience.
1: Yeah, I think I'm going to agree with you. Um, I think the there's more competition in the league as well. I think back in the day there were maybe three or three teams uh, pushing. I think there are more teams nowadays. Um, if you also look at some of the players in that United side, you have players like Nicky Butt, Ronnie Johnson. Um, you know, they're not. They don't get anywhere close to the Manchester City side, even a generational equivalent. Anyway. Um, so, moving on to the post-match, there were some crazy celebrations. Seems like Jack Grealish loves a bit of vodka, bringing uh, bringing Paul Gascoigne to the twentieth century with his goldfish bowl celebrations, having alcohol poured into his mouth from all directions. Do you think there's a limit to uh, how much football players should be seen celebrating? I've also seen pictures of um, of, of Edison taking what looks like uh, a chewing tobacco, uh, but he puts it in his mouth. And there's a lot of uh, rumours online that it might be uh, something a little bit more illegal. I very much doubt it, though. I know there's a culture of um, chewing tobacco amongst uh, professional footballers. Um, do you think this brings the game into disrepute? These people are role models models to our youngsters and our kids look up to them. Do you think it's then bad that Jack Grealish is having vodka poured into his mouth uh, in the middle of a square in Manchester on in the afternoon? Or do you think we should let these people celebrate their young lads Go, go and let them do what they want to do?
0: Just as in the past, I think we should let them celebrate. Football players have always celebrated victories. In the past, it was with alcohol. In the present, it's with alcohol or maybe something else in the case of Edson, as you mentioned. uh, I do think that there is an issue these days where every. Public citizen has a smartphone and can, you know, players have to be more careful that they could be uh, caught out uh, doing something wrong. They have to consider their roles as uh, themselves as role models and what that could mean uh, for their impact on the club and for sponsorship. However, I would push all that to side when your team has just won a, a, a monumental, a historic treble. I think that. These players, some of them have they, they they mentioned in the interviews afterwards. They you know it was I was really pleased to hear. I think it was Rodri saying this is for some of the guys who have moved on. You know this is for uh, Sergio Guerrero, This is for David Villa. This is for Ferdinand Ferdinandino. Did I say that right? Fernandinho? Fernandinho. Thank you. I these... th- they
1: also had Fernando. That was the problem. Fernand-
0: that's right. That, but the, all these legends of Manchester City who have been part of this transformation, this transformative building process towards this one moment. This campaign to win the European title has been going on for 12 years. So uh, with that in mind, I think, well, how, however long Pep's been there, you might argue, it's, it's gone up as a step. It's got more serious. So with that in mind, I don't think it's a problem for the players to celebrate. They deserve to celebrate. Uh, yeah, I agree. Yes, I think. They, sh- they should enjoy themselves.
1: And, and and do you think this could be a period, it could be moving into Manchester City's period of domination, a bit like Real Madrid dominated the last 10 years and Barcelona dominated the kind of seven years before that? Is this Manchester City's time or is this has this side... Kind of not maximized what they could have uh, got out of a very successful generation. I mean, you look at some of these players, and maybe a little bit older. Than, uh, than they would like to be if they wanted to push for a period of generation uh, of domination. And of course, there are players like Bernardo Silva and Gundogan, very important, absolutely key players who there are rumours that they might be looking for new experiences elsewhere. Um, so, I mean, I'm thinking about like, for example, Kevin De Bruyne could be younger, absolutely vital to the way they play and, and things like that. So do you think this could be uh, Manchester City's uh, period now for the next five, 10 years?
0: I think that it could be their period while Pep Guardiola is at the club. I think when Pep goes, the rumours are that he'll stay until his contract runs out in 2025. So another two seasons. Then whoever the new manager comes in has got a very, very difficult job. Uh, The Premier League now is so competitive. Any one of the 20 clubs gets so much television money, revenue to buy new players that any club that's at the top always has to be looking over their shoulder uh because they you know if you if you things slip just for one season or half a season as we've seen perhaps with uh Chelsea. Tottenham or Chelsea or even Liverpool this this last season then suddenly uh you've got six or seven clubs above you in the table uh putting pressure on you so uh I think Pep has built a dynasty and I do expect it to continue while Pep is there, but uh, it could all change in two years time.
1: Yeah. And we're running out of time, but last question. Um, Italian football, they had a a team in each European final. Uh, Okay. They were unlucky. They lost every European final, but uh, it's good to see Italian football back uh, punching um, at heavyweight level. And um, do you think this is is the return of Italian football? We've got some big clubs. Uh, we've got uh, AC Milan got to the semi-finals as well. Napoli uh, did well. Um, and of course, um, you, you know, Italian clubs are traditionally very strong in Europe. They're one of the the powerhouses of it, of European football in the 1990s of things. Um, or do you think they got a bit lucky, having a lot of teams drawn on one side of the draw, which meant an Italian side was going to go through to the final?
0: I think we have seen the renaissance of the Italian league. Uh, I think there's uh, six or seven very competitive teams. Uh, Of course, I watched the Fiorentina final against West Ham. If they had been more clinical, they would have won that game. Same with uh, Inter Milan against Manchester City. We talked about an equal number of chances for the teams. The only one I I would say that Sevilla deserved their victory against Roma. Uh, Mourinho's tactics were a little bit too cynical, a little bit too much complaining to the referee uh, there. So Sevilla were the worthy winners of that one. But two of those three finals could easily have gone Italy's way. And uh, I expect, just like Manchester City needed to lose before they could win, I wouldn't be surprised if Inter Milan and Roma and Fiorentina come back stronger next season and we will see an Italian winner of one of those three European tournaments.
1: Yeah, definitely possible. Definitely possible. And of course, we've got Napoli uh, who will go again strong uh, in the Champions League again next season. So, Tom, that's the Champions League final. Uh, I think that's all we've got time for today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, let's uh, remind our listeners to get involved in the conversation. Leave us a message on any of our social media platforms on TikTok. Uh, Tom's been releasing some very popular videos this uh, week on TikTok. Um And uh, leave us a rating. A five-star rating is obviously the nice one. And a comment. Ask us a question. Uh, We'd love for you to join the conversation. Do you speak football, basically? Uh, Let your friends know. Uh, And we'll catch you all for the next episode. Thanks, Tom. See you next time. Thanks, Tim. Bye-bye.